Welcome to the Fit for Fitness podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Davis, owner of Davis Fitness Method here in Seattle, Washington. This podcast is your resource for reliable fitness information. This information has been sourced from studies, experts, and real-world application from training with my clients and my own body. We're here to help you enhance your life by giving you practical takeaways that you can use today so that your energy, mood, and mindset begin to change right away. So let's not waste any more time. Let's jump into this episode. In today's episode, I am joined by none other than Andrew Coates. He's the owner of Andrew Coates Fitness. He's been a trainer since 2010. He's the host of the Lifts Free and Diet Hard podcast. He's also a fitness writer. He's written for major fitness publications, including T Nation, the PTDC, Generation Iron, and True Coach. He's the co-founder and MC of the Evolve Canadian Strength Symposium. And he's also a mentor for a small group of fitness professionals around the world. Needless to say, he has a lot to offer. And so hopefully you can take something away from this podcast. If you do, you know, go give him a, a thumbs up on Instagram. I'll include the link in the show notes. And let's get started. The first thing I wanted to actually ask you is, you know, like, uh, for those who are listening, how did you get started? You know, who, who are you? Um, and how would you describe what you do? Okay, so let's let's start with how I got started. I have a Bachelor of Commerce degree. Um, I didn't go and do a kinesiology degree in university. And I, I sort of fell into this stuff. Um, I grew up in St. John's, Newfoundland, well, in Newfoundland in general. And I moved out to Edmonton, Alberta when I was about 28. And I'd, I've been really serious about working out in gyms and around, I guess, bodybuilding culture, reading bodybuilding magazines since I was certainly 24. I'd been very active in sports before that. And, you know, that had always been a big part of my life. And I wasn't really enjoying the kind of jobs I was bouncing around with over the, the years. I used to own a nightclub in Newfoundland. That was a headache. And the couple of trainers, managers at a gym I worked out at here kept bugging me to come work there because they thought I'd make a good trainer. Like, all right, cool. First, I said no. And I eventually said, all right, I'll give this a shot. And it worked out really well. The gym got me really busy really quickly. And then I proved to be able to renew, develop good relationships with my clientele and generate referral business. And referrals, especially was something that was very vital to my early success and ongoing success, word of mouth. And then that transition from, I guess, a job and something I was doing fairly well with to an ever-growing passion devotion. It became a very long-term career for me, which I worked for that gym for six years. And then I left because, unfortunately, that commercial gym just was going down the tubes in a lot of different ways. And eventually, they went bankrupt. But I, I started my own business and contracted out of my friend's gym at Evolve Strengths. So you'll see Evolve Strength on my bio and on Instagram. And I talk a lot about it. Now, some people have the misconception I'm the owner. I'm no, I'm just, you know, maybe you could call it a flagship type trainer where the owner of Evolve and it's a growing series of corporate, uh, corporately owned and franchise gyms in, in Western Canada. He's very quiet, like sitting in the background. So he likes the fact that, you know, guys like me and Dean Somerset are under the umbrella with our own individual brands. And if anyone's not familiar with Dean Somerset, you should be brilliant educator, brilliant uh, trainer based out of Edmonton as well. Uh, so then along the way, I, I don't know how 
I shifted the mindset. I used to believe that, you know, oh, I'm just a regular gym trainer. And here's this tier, this, I hate thinking in terms of status games, but these, this group of people who are industry leaders, and there's certainly the people I've been reading on Teen Nation for years, or the ones that you hear as guests on regular podcasts, people like Tony Janelcore, Dean Somerset certainly would have been one of those people. I met you at Luca Hosovar's, uh, you know, fitness and business conference, uh, a couple of months ago in Seattle. I certainly think of Luca in that light and, and many other people that we would recognize as, as known industry leaders and figures. And, you know, I never imagined, okay, there's, there's a route to, you know, being the guests of these type of podcasts or writing for publications like Teen Nation. So along the way, a good friend of mine, Dean Guido, wanted to start a fitness podcast. So I said, okay, sure. He wanted me to co-host it with him. And I've obviously done a lot of traveling and, you know, connected with and, and friends with people like Sohi Lee and Mike Isertel, who are two of our earlier guests and that helped kind of get the podcast blown up. And then that led to connecting with more and more people in the industry, which led to connecting with Danny Sugar, one of the editors at T Nation, whose stuff I've always loved. And that pulled Danny in as a podcast guest. And Danny turned around and asked me to write for T Nation, which, of course, is one of these surreal dream come true type things. And I think that was kind of a major inflection point. And that led to, and I'm sort of reading through the bio and who I am, uh, in addition to being a full-time in-person trainer, and I do a little bit of online training, and I mentor trainers. I don't wave that around because the business coach crowd can sometimes seem a little bit skeezy, but people ask, so I'll help them. Uh, and I love fitness writing. So that T-Nation turned into more. I'd been writing for my own website before that. And that led to Generation Iron knocking on my door and them asking me to write for them, which has recently led to writing for Barbend and uh, the Personal Trainer Development Center. And who knows, the sky's the limit, right? I've got ambitions to write for more big publications. And I enjoy writing and I, and I like reading books on writing to develop that skill. And then obviously the podcast. So it, its current form is called the Lift Free and Diet Hard Podcast. And I, I have Don Saladino, who you probably met when we were in Seattle as well. He's my next book to guest. And Jonathan Goodman's going to be on after that. And, you know, if you look back through the library, the history of 200 plus episodes, it's kind of the who's who of the industry leaders. And it's a really cool opportunity to get to talk to these type of people. So this is why I love this sort of stuff is you get time one-on-one -on -one to get to know someone. So that's a little bit of the history. Uh, along the way, there's been a other like kind of cool stuff, but uh, I think that does a pretty good job. And I think what was the third part of that question you'd asked? What do I do, right? <clears throat> I know a lot of people in our industry are really caught up in the belief that they need to niche down. And I think that that can be misleading advice, especially for a lot of newer and emerging coaches. You're probably better off working with a broader array of people. Obviously, I don't believe in training people you're not qualified to train, but you also have to learn things somehow. I don't coach Olympic lifters. I don't have that skill. While I think most of my work is getting the general population very strong, fit, getting beginners and intermediates more consistent in the gym, loving the lifestyle. You know, that's the sort of stuff I really love working with. I have worked with young athletes. I occasionally get young athletes and sometimes adult athletes. I've worked with WHL hockey players, but they have come not because I've marketed myself as a strength and condition coach, but because of personal relationships where I've already been coaching family members or people that they knew. And that turned into working with these young athletes, which is fun. I also work with some older adults. Anyone who sees my social media sees my client, Larry. Larry's 71. And he can trap our deadlift over 410 pounds. I have him doing a lot of cool shit like heavy farmer's carries. He squats better than most people half his age. And he's sort of, he's become a bit of an avatar for 
what I want to encourage people to do is to just get active, be healthier. And he's got a big fan club for my, my following. So I, I love working with people like that. I love encouraging women to get involved in, in strength training and fitness more. And I try to use my media as, I guess, advocacy for that. Um, I don't work with competitive powerlifters. I don't work with competitive bodybuilders because I don't love those things because I don't have that applied experience. I've never competed myself. But I've never felt the need to kind of come up with a hard niche and have on my bio. I help moms between the ages of 38 and 40 who have 2.2 kids who work in real estate and blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and I jest, but we know that people do those yeah. things. I think it's okay, but I'd rather not tell people what I do. I'd rather be so inviting and compelling with my media that people are interested in just diving in more and learning. And then you realize that there's a, there's more breadth and more depth to what my career entails than just something I can say in a sentence in a bio. Right. That's, that's awesome. Um, yeah. And I even saw on your, your about me on your website, um, it is, you know, fairly detailed. And um, I think that it gives you a good idea of the type of individual that you're going to work with. And I think it's kind of why I'm also drawn to some of your content. It's not overly like really trying to push a certain way of, of doing things. And, um, and I think that in terms of your message that you're delivering it, you know, very clearly, like to the people that you're looking to work with. Um, and that being said, like, you know, it, gen, gen pop, I think often, um, gets mistaken as just beginner lifting advice. Um, so like what, what is some advice that you would give to, you know, somebody who's just getting started, um, when they're looking to, to get in the gym? So like legitimately beginner, mm. um, what would you say are like some of the first key things that you'd like them to focus on when they're getting started? Like, let's say like three things. I think it has to start with enjoying the experience. And for some people, it may go, go back further. They have to overcome the intimidation factor of the gym. So there's a lot here. One is finding a gym environment that you feel a bit more safe and comfortable in. And while I, I, I don't like pushing the whole idea, oh, you need to hire a coach. I mean, it, it's a fairly easy one. If you do your homework, you search around, you interview, you ask for referrals to someone who's really skilled and really qualified. Not just, hey, my, my cousin is a trainer or my friend is a trainer, but someone who has a really strong reputation and, and an obvious care for the individuals in front of them and not just trying to make money. And, and there's nothing dishonorable about trainers being paid well, but usually the trainers who get paid well and do well long-term are people who really love and are passionate about what they're doing. So I don't think it's very hard to ask around and gain referrals and, and look for strong word of mouth. And it doesn't mean that you need to have a coach forever, but it can really help make the experience in the environment feel fun and safer. And if you can overcome that initial barrier, that's a big key to you know forming a habit. If it's fun, if you enjoy that relationship, and if you enjoy showing up to it all the time, that's a key to habit formation, right? They're creating a craving. And, and for coaches, especially who are listening to this, I think if you're reading habit liter literature, some of the basics, whether it's Atomic Habits by James Clear or uh, B.J. Fogg's Tiny Habits is really good. I mean, the classic The Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg. I actually think that's a great read. You know, understanding how this stuff works is, is really useful for trainers. Um, there's another book I'm on. I can't remember the author's name. I'm partway through it. It's called Inner Size, and it sort of ties into that, too. Really good read. So if someone finds that they enjoy the experience and it's fun, they're going to want to return to it. So I think that's the main thing. And then obviously 
learning. If you're not confident in what you're doing, your people tend to be worried that others are looking at them, watching them, ju- being judgmental. Part of that can be the type of gym you find. Like I find your stereotypical commercial gym isn't super, but they're also not terrible. And a lot of people like to perpetuate these negative stereotypes about it too. If you are in an environment that seems to tolerate a lot of this crap, okay, cool. Definitely try to find another gym. Be very careful about getting locked in long contracts if you're not familiar with what the gym environment's like. Usually you can try it as a trial. Try to grab on a more useful information here, useful advice. Again, hiring the coach can really help with overcoming that uncertainty about what you're doing if you have a skilled coach. But there's also a lot of resources out there. And, and I referenced T-Nation. It's still one of my all-time favorites. It's something I'm very proud to kind of have as part of my brand as, as an ongoing contributor to them. But there's more and more good information and smart fitness professionals that you can find out there who are sharing. You know, yeah, people make fun of like, you're not going to learn how to work out from Instagram. Well, it depends on who you're watching. I mean, if you're watching people are doing the complicated circus shit, no, it's not going to be very helpful. But if you find people who are, continually sharing the basics in a constructive and positive way in a non-judgmental way, you can learn a lot from that. And if someone's sharing video of how to do exercise properly, chances are they're writing in longer format on their own websites or for major publications. And you can dive into these resources and it should be enough to help you put together something on your own. That's pretty functional. And then if you're in the habit and you're, you're interested in investing in learning more, you will go out and learn more, whether it's, you know, getting into the resource library of, you know, someone like Mike Isertel at Renaissance Periodization, or if it's Juggernaut's uh, training systems, uh, Chad Wesley Smith stuff, or any number of other really fucking awesome people in the industry. That's awesome. Um, that's all really good stuff. The, the part where you were talking about fun and safety kind of like, you know, set off some like bells in my own head because, I think it's important for people to have fun um, and feel that they're in a safe environment because the opposite um, may cause them to kind of like draw back a bit and not even um, experience as quality of movement uh, as they would if they felt they were in a fun and safe environment. They feel um, more free and loose and they probably are you know, less tight, um, if you will. Um, just I feel like that all kind of plays a role into that. Um, so when, when somebody's getting, so like somebody's got, they've got a, a gym that they like going to, they have a coach they like working with. Um, do you feel like there are further steps that they need to take after those points? Or do you feel like those are the primary like things that need to be covered? They're, they're certainly good catalysts at the very start. I always like to approach it as an ongoing journey. Now, again, it really depends on the person because for one person, they may be really interested in learning aggressively and on a lifelong quest to, to gain more. Another person might be kind of overwhelmed by it all the time. And if you throw too much at them, then they're going to get overwhelmed and they're just going to fall out of the habit completely. And you're going to get other people who are so curious and craving novelty and variety that they're going to program hop and jump around. And if anything, they almost need to develop a bit more of an understanding and a confidence in the fact that the basics work, that a consistent program over a longer period of time applied consistently is going to do a lot more for them than switching up exercises and doing a lot of random cuckoo creative stuff. So it's still always going to vary based on the individual. Somebody's going to do really well with being shown how to do a basic program 
by a coach and then they're off to the races. There are going to be other people who are going to see a lot of value in having a coach uh, for a lifetime. And obviously it depends on each individual's resources, right? I have clientele who are lifestyle clientele who, you know, definitely possess the financial resources to have that coach for the long run. And I work with some people who, you know, it's, it's a big investment for them to hire a coach. They see the value in the investment. And I definitely like every once in a while, Jonathan Goodman posts this kind of stuff where there are what I would call predatory business coaches. It's a perfect analogy are telling young trainers who don't have the financial resources to take out loans to do, you know, $6,000, uh, you know, coaching programs. I mean, that, that's, that's immoral. That's unethical. That's predatory. And you shouldn't go into a gym and feel pressured into buying a year long training package with a trainer and outlaying a, a very significant commitment, I suppose. There's, there's value in making commitments to yourself on one hand. My philosophy varies, I think, a lot from what a lot of other trainers do. A lot of trainers will do three month minimum stuff and they're, they're, they've earned the right to do that. My online coaching is month to month. And my in-person coaching, my clients buy, buy and renew at a minimum of five sessions at a time. And I do that because, and I tell people this, I'm more interested in creating, creating functionally independent people. And if someone feels a lot of value in the relationship, well, they're going to want to continue anyway, right? And they do. I'm more interested in creating, not artificially erecting barriers to leave. I want to create an incentive for someone to stay. And in my experience, I mean, first of all, it holds me accountable to making sure that I'm always very on in the relationship to make sure that people are getting value out of it uh, and I never get complacent. But it it's unthreatening to people coming in. They're, they're comfortable making that initial commitment. And I know there's this, this element of we need to go over and above to really break through the resistance of a person who's struggling to form the habit. Okay. We know that we talked, we alluded to that earlier, but as a coach, my hope is everybody arrives at this position after a little while where you get to be a bit more discerning about the type of clientele you're working with. And, And I'll come back to the idea of like managing your own personal energy. I am comfortable with telling someone my, my prices up front. I'm comfortable telling someone answering those kind of blunt questions because they can serve as a filter. If someone asks me, the first question someone asks me is how much are my rates? Then I know that that person is probably shopping on price. Now it's okay to shop on price because people have budgets, but as a coach, we, we we've been taught we want to show people value. If someone is still a price thinker, on average, as a coach, in, in any of your guys' experience, you probably know that the people who are trying to negotiate you know, lower rates, asking for discounts aggressively, are also often the most demanding and, quite frankly, biggest pains in the ass you're going to deal with. So I'm okay with filtering those inquiries out very early because I'm going to realize, okay, this person's probably not going to be a good fit for me. Uh, I do hope that they ultimately find what they're looking for and they get a great experience. But we as coaches, we can't help everybody either. And if we take on a lot of very emotionally taxing type of personalities and people who, God forbid, you resent or dread working with. And I, I don't think it's ever fair 
for a coach to feel that way. But you also have to be careful not to take on the types of business that clients are feel desperate to the point where we need to take this stuff on, where we feel like we're resentful of the amount of work we're doing for the amount we're being paid, which is usually comes from charging too little or attracting price sensitive clients, which ultimately, let's say, you know, your cancellation policy is what it is, but that, that, that type of client is always more likely to push back or get upset or frustrated if they cancel short notice and they, they expect you to, to waive the cancellation fee. And, and you say, no, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, my time is valuable. Your time is valuable. I'm trying to hold you accountable. And then they, they get, they get upset or it causes stress when you're enforcing it. And then you feel guilty and you stop doing it. You could avoid all that kind of stuff by filtering those sort of people out early on. And think about this. Let's say you're a coach who's training 35 to 40 client sessions a week. And we know as coaches, if you're doing 35 to 40 client sessions a week, that's an incredibly busy schedule. That doesn't pack neatly into 40 hours. That's that's probably stretched over 55 to 60 hours of breadth across your time. Plus, there's a time to program those people. And if you have one or two people that you don't enjoy working with to the point where you kind of dread seeing them, and you've got a long day, eight, nine sessions, and that person you dread dealing with is like the seventh of the eight. Well, it's going to be on your mind, the back of your mind for everybody else before then. And by the time you get to them, you're going to be, you know, kind of taxed and everybody else you're working with will feel it. It'll show up in the way that your interactions are. You're a little distracted. You're not as positive. Really good book on that tackles this topic. Uh, book Yourself Solid by Michael Port. It, it, it can be really valuable to t- take a good look at the type of clientele you're working with that just make you feel that way. And it doesn't mean they're bad people. And I, and I hate when trainers go on social media and say, Oh, I fired this client like bragging about like, that looks like that looks unprofessional. That's terrible. But you can, in a very professional way, and this book talks about this, say to this person, you know, I don't think this is a really perfect fit for you. I have someone I think would be really great. And in the most professional way possible before things go South, take that client and, move them on somewhere else and how how much you'll alleviate the stress and the distraction of dealing with that person on average will leave you feeling more positive, more energized in every interaction with all your other clientele. And it's almost as if by magic, and I mean, it's not mystical woo, but it's like, there's an explanation behind it. You, you start attracting more people, better types of clients that are better fits for you. You get create like books like I've never read them, but I know the secret or the, what was the other one? There's the alchemist. They kind of get to this sort of thing, right? And the, the whole, the energy you put out into the world is what comes back to you. Well, there's a fundamental truth and there's a reason behind it. And it's not this mystical woo nonsense. There's something underlying it, but uh, this is stuff that I think a lot of trainers might miss. And I think a lot of trainers risk burning out because they feel overwhelmed by taking every type of client because they feel desperately in need of the business and they fear losing that client. And what ends up happening is you spend more time and energy catering to the client who's asking for discounts and and causing all sorts of other stress. than you do taking care of the clients that don't blow your phone up with all kinds of different stuff or are really sweet and easy to work with and fun. So so the clients that are working with you that, maybe don't tend to like ask a lot, like they, they tend to come in and they tend to do what they're supposed to. Um, do you think there's things that they could do to get more out of their existing programs? Because like somebody who is maybe cost conscious and tends to like 
like burn up more of the time. Is there something that the people on the other end can do? Or do you think this is the responsibility of the coach to kind of make sure that, okay, I recognize that this person's taking up a lot of energy. I need to make sure that I'm also passing on these sort of resources to the people that aren't necessarily asking for it. Well, it, it does start with asking. It does start with like saying that person, you, you are, I, I've done this over the years, lots, because I can think of lots of clients who can like this. And I say, you, you work really, really hard. You're always absorbing everything we do in our sessions. You, you know, you never reach out with questions. Is there anything more that I could possibly do to, to make this experience even more valuable for you? And part of it is it's our ego worried that I don't know, we're, we're worried that somehow we're not doing enough. And I think it's a good thing to be conscientious of this, but sometimes the client's just really fucking satisfied and they're low maintenance. And we sometimes mistake our idea of what a client derives value from versus what they derive value from. I've had a lot of profoundly successful, low maintenance clients over the years who've spent a lot of time working with me. And I'm always conscientious of the exact exchange you and I've just had. But sometimes the reason why they're low maintenance is because of just the way that they're wired. They, they understand the value of the experience. They don't really need, they're, they're asking the right questions. And maybe you as a coach are doing a really good job of proactively answering the questions before they ask them. And if you've been professional and reliable and they really like showing up and hanging out for the workout, I've had clients who are far more independent than, than they have any need to continue to coach with me. And yet I've stayed on for years because they value the accountability. They value the experience, the time together, the relationship. And early in my experience, I struggled with this emotional need to really over deliver on value. And I, and I think that's a good thing. It's a good place to start. But over time, I realized that let's say you get that client who hasn't seen miraculous weight loss and you're taking it very personally. Well, you're making it about you and it's really about them and their goals. And it turns around that client's really happy because I, I've got one client. She's, she was the inflection point for me a very long time ago where she came to me and, and she publicly taught, and I won't say a name, but she publicly put this right on her Facebook and I trained her sister-in-law and a whole bunch of other family members. And she said that, on her Facebook wall that her doctor said she needs to start working out because her blood pressure and blood sugar were high. So she asked if I would be able to take clients on. And so I absolutely sure. So brought her in and she started working out with me. I think it was like two or three times a week. And it trickled down to a little bit less frequent over a few years. And she moved really well. She actually deadlifted and squatted really well. She was at her early fifties and she was actually naturally quite strong, grew up on a farm. And she lost about 15 pounds fairly quickly and her blood pressure and her blood sugar within the space of, oh God, certainly six months had gone back down to kind of within normal ranges. She was quite happy. But I remember sort of feeling frustrated because, you know, there was not much further weight loss progress, for example, but ultimately she was really happy and she sort of trailed off a little bit because it was a bit of a drive, especially in winters for her to come to, to see me in the gym. But then a gym opened up in her, like this sort of a... Um, what is that? A satellite community, kind of like suburbs right around the corner from her house. So she started going three, three times a week and she'd go in there straight to the squat racks and she was crushing her big lifts and all this sort of stuff. 
and she was happy and she was consistent, but it allowed her to actually live the lifestyle where she enjoyed you know, eating and drinking what she wanted to and traveling and having good energy. Her, her energy was night and day. And I realized that I'd been guilty of kind of importing my value system and what I felt like should be her goals in place of what ultimately was making her really happy. And while she had a little bit of trouble getting into the consistent routine of coming to the gym on her own while she was still coming to see me, she'd acquire the skills or the proficiency and the confidence that when a gym opened up around a corner from her, she dove right in and she did really well. That's, that's awesome. The, the, I just, I literally just had a conversation with one of my clients about this, um, where we were kind of just talking about like balance and how people will see like things that are going on online. I know that you're talking about from the perception of just like the trainer, but like even clients sometimes coming in and not even recognizing the level of balance that something might have. It's kind of nice that that person, she just kind of had that. Um, but like, you know, where people can go to cultivate some of that in this age of like social media and stuff like that. There's, there's so many people that are like work out five days a week, you know, eat these sorts of foods. This is how you get going. Right. And I was like, with a busy schedule, like a stressful, you know, corporate job and a family. And like, you're also trying to add exercise and whatever other stress your life may contain. Maybe it's lack of sleep. Um, it can be challenging to actually incorporate all of those things, if at all, like it's, it might not, it just might not happen. Um, and so is that like a conversation that you have with your clients when, when they're getting started? Um, is that a, a conversation that's kind of always adjusting? You're always calibrating for that as you go. It, it, it both, it absolutely comes up initially because you're still starting with each individual person in their circumstance. You're going to get the one person when you ask, you know, because when I, when I think about building programs, I'll, I'll often ask them, you know, how many days a week would you ideally see yourself working out? And some people be like, oh, at least six. <laughs> some other people like, um, I could probably make two work, right? You know, you're doing dealing with different mindsets that it doesn't mean that the person who thinks they can do six is automatically going to be more successful because oftentimes they set the bar artificially high and then they, they have this artificial pass fail or if they don't do it, that they fall completely off track. They're just as vulnerable as, as the person who's just, you know, as a hope, a realistic hope of getting two workouts in. And you start where the person is. I mean, coaches can risk often fitting everybody into their system when I still think the best thing is to take a very good look at where that person is starting and craft an experience that is most likely to help that person succeed. And if it's a person who really just wants to be able to do two times a week with confidence, then let's start them there and let's get them doing, you know, um, a full body workout twice a week, a little bit of everything, make sure they don't feel too sore that it discourages them from getting going early. And maybe that that person who wants six days a week. Okay, cool. Well, you know, I might rotate through a push, pull legs, push, pull legs, depending on again, their goals. But I'm also going to be very conscientious of what are the, why isn't this person doing the six time a week now? What is the psychological stuff going on that's interfering with their ability to do it? Right. Um, I, oh, I found my cat. And so he's protesting that uh, I've picked him up. Now he's good. Um, I, I, if you could go back to the original question, I want to make sure I've, I've answered the essence of it. Yeah. Uh, so when, when getting started, how do you 
adjust for like realistic expectations? Um, how do you, how do you keep the client on track over time? Again, I think it's, it's open dialogue. That's a really big part of it. And just ask them how they're doing, how they're feeling, you know, where are they feeling they're being successful? Some people, it's going to be the, you know, the, the classic precision nutrition, one habit at a time, BJ Fogg, tiny habits, like gradual habit building. There are going to be other people who are able to dive in and kind of take it all on as, as a bit more of an aggressive thing. You have to be on guard against those people falling off track completely. But it's it's going to always be that ongoing conversation to see how they're doing. And I, I don't think there's a formula for it. It really just will be um, adjusting and pivoting to where they are in the process. Right. That totally makes sense. Um, and you mentioned earlier, uh, Jonathan Goodman, and, and you were talking about um, kind of this jumping around programs idea um, where, you know, people don't necessarily get results because they're, they're jumping around. And, and Jonathan Goodman just made a post that talks about people getting bored. Um, and that could be like one of the reasons why they're leaving. Uh, so h- how, how do you balance that? Jonathan's a good friend. So it's kind of funny. Jonathan's had a major pivot in his social media lately. <laughs> John's been talking to people like me and Jordan Syatt because he's wanted to revamp some of the stuff he's doing with his business. And uh, now all of a sudden he's, he's done this, posting style and he's his following is surging as a result of it so that's pretty cool uh john is is someone i think is a really smart industry leader that is worth paying attention to what he's doing but all right let me not lose track uh (laughs) actually i did lose track so ask me that again i apologize yes yeah so basically there's the idea that jumping around programs won't (laughs) get you results right and then jonathan was saying that clients leave as a result of getting bored how do you balance the two? Okay, so you are going to have clients coming in with, you know, the the idea that they need uh, randomized results. My very last client who was just training with me, he's a returning client. He's a young guy. He's done really well. But he met with another trainer, just get, did the free session at a local gym um, before he came back to me. And that trainer told him that, you know, the muscle confusion principle was important. And we, we, we intuitively know this stuff is, is old school nonsense. <sighs> There are going to be people who actually, he, he knew better, right? Because he'd applied a basic program I'd given him. He's like in his late teens and he's up 30 pounds of muscle in a year, just naturally. He's done really well because he applied the same program consistently. So we have people who will intuitively and in- intellectually appreciate it when we break down logical arguments. But most people make decisions or are driven by kind of emotional belief systems, so we got to recognize, okay, does someone have an emotional belief system that, you know, oh, we have to confuse muscles and change things up and they always have to feel sore? Okay, well, A, we want to see what they crave. Sometimes people just want novelty. They want creativity and novelty in the program. So instead of, one of my biggest pet peeves is when trainers sit down and educate and lecture and contradict, uh, you know, the beliefs or the, or the things that clients uh, come up with or run across. You're far better off saying, I'm really glad that you would, you know, you've been researching this stuff on the internet. So, you know, here's actually the, you know, here's some, here's some truth behind some of this stuff, but here's actually why this is this. You, you still have to demonstrate to that person and feed the emotional belief system as to why the thing that they believe is untrue versus lecturing them on why it's untrue. And in the case of this client, when he brought this up, you know, I immediately turned around and was like, well, you know, 
what have you been doing the last, you know, six months uh, to nine months to, uh, you know, put on 30 pounds of muscle? You know, have you been basically staying on the same basic program I gave you? I'm, and he's like, yeah. I'm like, have you noticed that worked really well? He's like, absolutely. So it drew him right back to the emotion plus some logic of, okay, cool, this works. Sometimes you actually have to give people a little bit of what they want while slipping in what they really need. I don't see a problem with having a basic program structure, but rotating exercises. Who's to say you can't do a seated cable row one day and a TRX inverted row another day and a dumbbell row another day as variations while overwhelming the program is fundamentally the same thing. If you give them that what they crave emotionally, you can feed them what they need to be successful. And everything here is about building trust. If you build rapport and trust with the client over time, then you have a lot more latitude to turn around and quote, educate them on what's true and myth bust. If you try to dive into that when you're sitting down the consultation, when they've been referred to you, or maybe it's just a cold consult and the trust and relationship isn't there yet, and you contradict them or make them feel stupid because you're telling them something they believe is wrong, you're going to lose the sale. You're going to lose that person. And they're going to go end up in front of someone who's going to feed them bullshit that they want to be told. And, you know, they're not going to have a great experience. And I think we do certainly have an obligation to help those kind of people. I, I hate seeing trainers complain and cry about what influencers are doing and misinformation when they themselves are struggling to create brand and media and, and reach and word, word of mouth that ultimately helps in a constructive way, educate more people, get more clients in front of them that they can teach safely and give them great results and help. But it feels daunting to combat the people with large followings, but you know, we're not going to help and save everybody, but we can help one person at a time. And maybe just maybe it might be worth trying to create and share all the wisdom that you have. And actually, if you grow a following that can reach more people, and I've very deliberately been doing that, you can actually positively affect more lives. And I look at people like Jordan Syed, who's Sohi Lee, who've got really monstrous followings. They're doing a really effective job of combating a lot of the bullshit that's out there without actually complaining about the people who are, are, are creating misinformation. Ran on a tangent there, but I think it's, right, it's yeah. what we're talking about. No, I, th- I think that's, you know, definitely, definitely true. Um, with, with like a lot of the, the myth busting and, um, stuff like that. What would you say are like maybe some common ones? Like when people first, you know, come into the gym with you, you, mes- you mentioned like muscle confusion, but like what are some other ones that you find, um, come up and then maybe things that like actually kind of get in the way or kind of hinder people's progress, like things that are just generally not, not only not helpful, but maybe counterproductive. Mm. Oh, that's probably an astonishing array of different things. Usually the nutritional stuff is, is the worst stuff versus the, the exercise science stuff. I think most people intuitively understand that, you know, they need to work out in order to, be healthier. I think that's kind of a, a thing. I think the, the the difficulty is getting people comfortable in gym environments. The stuff we talked about earlier in this episode. I think the nutritional stuff is where people get really confused because there's a far more misinformation out there because it's. And again, not you know, again, it, not to complain about them because they exist because they're never going away. But you get people writing books. You get these doctors. <laughs> it's like whether it's Doctor Jason Fung or. 
uh, Mercola or any number of these other ones. I mean, Mehmet Oz, you know, Dr. Oz. Uh, there's a few others I can't remember, but they're pumping out. What's the name? William Davis who wrote Wee Belly. The stuff is fiction. And a lot of it's perpetuating. Gary Taub's another one. I keep remembering them now. Who they're spreading misinformation. And the fundamental one is that things like carbs are bad or, you know, fat has been the devil before. There's all sorts of misinformation about what's healthy. You have Sean Baker, Dr. Sean Baker peddling the carnivore diet, right? How somehow, and then this entire tribe has grown up to now believe that fiber and vegetables are somehow bad for you, right? Like, how the hell did we get there, right? And then the flip side is you get, you know, some of the hardcore vegan community who, you know, obviously there's an ethical belief system there. And I think there's a lot of good there. And I think that, you know, being a vegan, as long as you're supplementing with the things that are going to be missing from, um, you know, otherwise a healthy diet, you can be very healthy as a vegan. It's probably a lot healthier than the typical Western diet that's leading to, you know, mass obesity. But there's also misinformation and, and tribalism all across the board with, with all these nutritional things. And then you get the end user who's just straight up confused as to what to believe. You have doctors and you think, oh, these are doctors. These people are authorities. Well, hey, they have very little education in actual nutrition. So they're on average, not credible sources. Now, some of them can be, you get a guy like Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. He's a great source of, of nutritional information. He's an obesity specialist. And he is the person I think anybody should be paying attention when it comes to medical advice surrounding nutrition and obesity and the, the long-term health implications of, of that stuff. And you get people screaming from the rooftops, you know, you get this extremist tribe, ideological tribe that says that, you know, oh, there's no relationship between obesity and, you know, negative health outcomes like diabetes and, and cardiovascular disease. Now we, we know that's crap. I train a cardiologist. He's like, that stuff's nonsense. But that, that community is nasty. They're vicious bullies, but they exist. Okay. They're part of the problem too. And then you get the other side of it who are virulent fat shamers and just take that message and flip it. And it's their messaging and their negative way of making it judgmental and it's filled with shame that kind of creates the backlash, the counter pendulum swing, which is the, the kind of the extreme end of the health entity size crowd. And, and neither one of these communities is doing any help and creating a lot of harm. So the end user is overwhelmed. They're confused. They're stressed out. And it's much easier just to default back to the way that they were. And instead of being afraid of failing, then they just default to continuing to feel and live the way that they live. And they're frustrated. So what do we do? We make them feel safe. goes back to our first part of our conversation. You build trust. And then you gradually figure out where they are in the process. What are the, the flawed belief systems? And then try to present them with an emotionally appealing argument filled with facts of what the actual truth is. And you just try to steer them. If you can keep them consistent in the gym, a lot of people just intuitively start eating better anyway. And if they're eating healthier and better, then you can start to, to take some of the technical expertise to optimize and figure out how to get more protein in their diet. And what would be good dietary sources of protein and, you know, getting them to not be afraid of carbs and enjoy certain type of carbohydrates. And, you know, we got to be very careful as coaches to navigate disordered eating behavior, because unless you're a registered dietitian, you know, that stuff, certainly eating disorders are outside of your scope of practice, but I think a lot of people deal with disordered eating. So we still have to have a lot of knowledge here, 
and, and tread with care, but to help navigate the challenges that people have with disordered eating beliefs. So there's a lot in here and there's no simple and effective way to answer that question to give every coach and every, you know, client a clear answer to say, Oh my God, that makes so much sense. I'm okay now. It's going to be a long, complicated, ongoing process. But if you develop that trust and a great relationship, you can help that person along the way. And that person feels like they have someone they can trust and who supports them. And it maybe makes making those changes a little less intimidating. And maybe after some of those changes, they notice, Whoa, I've lost some weight. I'm feeling leaner. I have better energy. I feel more confident. And they start letting go of some of the stories and these broken belief systems that are no longer serving them. And then you're seeing them change at a, at a deeper level. And that's ultimately what I kind of hope that I can, I can foster and facilitate with, with the clients that I have in front of me or online. But especially through my media writing or, or podcasting, reach more coaches and, and more general population so that way it helps a broader array of people. And I'm a big believer in that. Right. So uh, just, just like you mentioned, like more coaches putting out, you know, quality content so that people have these things to find, um, you know, do you think it's best though for somebody maybe to throw themselves into the void that is all of this information and then slowly hope to sift and navigate through to the, the people who are doing the right things? Cause like sometimes, sometimes somebody starts a keto diet and isn't successful, but as a result of that knows that there's something else out there and then goes to search for that thing. So as much as we might like, you know, shit on something that is, you know, incorrect or maybe net unhealthy, um, it was marketable enough for that person to get started. And maybe now they sound, find themselves like navigating, like what I say is the void, like that area between genuine expertise and misinformation. Well, you hint at what I, I'm assuming is your philosophy and my philosophy aligns exactly with yours. I like using CrossFit as the analogy here and keto works perfectly. People love to bag on CrossFit and I think CrossFit is evolving. I, I think it, I tend to be very averse to tribalism because I find that tribalism in all aspects of our world, especially complex social ideological things, certainly political, and I won't go near that stuff, but nutritional I find a lot of this tribalism is actually quite problematic. It's, it's creating a lot of division, bullying, hate from all sides. And all sides are guilty of this stuff. And, and, it, and in, in nutrition, I mean, people are hateful and bully each other over nutrition. When, did, when the hell did that happen? So if you get people, CrossFit almost, I think, single-handedly is probably the more modern phenomenon that's gotten more boots in gyms and barbells in hand than anything else. And I think it's it's a place and a community that a lot of people feel welcome in. They like being a part of, and it helps get them off the couch, which I think is a net positive, it, it, exactly what you're alluding to. Keto gets people thinking about nutrition. Now, the danger, I think, with some of these dietary fads, intermittent fasting, I, I like to kind of point out that I think intermittent fasting, while can really work well for some people, it's not special. And the, the research on that is very clear. There's a recent study that kind of, again, reinforces this. But in the hands of someone who has disordered eating behavior and thinking, intermittent fasting is sort of a dressed up sciencey way to make acceptable an eating disorder, right? 
it, you know, it, it reinforces kind of binge and restriction uh, cycles. So we got to be really careful with this stuff. I still agree with you. I think that a lot of people are going to find these diets and then eventually kind of realize, okay, this doesn't work for me. And maybe they just find the right person, the right coach or the right information online. And then they, they're able to maybe count calories more effectively that it works for them, or they're able to more intuitively eat and be very mindful, depending on the system that seems to work best. I mean, if, if I were to rate and rank nutritional ideologies and approaches, I think, you know, the kind of the calorie counting, the, if you want to call it the if it fits your macros, which gets carried away a little bit, or certainly flexible dieting, I think is the term I like to choose, or intuitive eating, mindful eating, if done correctly, these are probably the two best approaches. And if you can use one to get to the other or vice versa, I think they're the route to long-term success. I certainly think, you know, basic habit-based nutrition, which is, again, what precision nutrition promotes, I think it ties into this stuff. So I think these are the best places we want to ultimately get people to. And if keto is a stepping stone to getting there, I think it's wonderful. If CrossFit, if someone is able to excel and enjoy CrossFit, great. But if, if and again, it's a bit of a stereotypical cliche, low-hanging fruit to criticize CrossFit for its injury potential, people get hurt bodybuilding, people get hurt powerlifting, people get hurt doing all kinds of stuff. If Someone finds CrossFit and ultimately moves along the spectrum to finding something that's a little bit more balanced and fits their lifestyle, but keeps them active and doing safe, effective training for a lifetime, then I'm glad that they found CrossFit or that they found a group training thing like F45 or any number of these other sort of boot camp type things, group things that if it leads someone to success, great. We can't save everybody. I damn well wish we could. but. As a coach, we, we just try to help to the best of our ability with integrity, the person in front of us. And I, I believe not everybody has an obligation, but I certainly think that it's worth trying to, to grow and create a brand and, and greater reach so that our message gets further. But at the same time, it's also incumbent on the consumer to take the time to learn as much as possible. I know that most of them don't necessarily want to do this, but you have to take personal responsibility and ownership over the process. And that's something that's, that message is almost, it got, it's almost politically incorrect. Sometimes on social media, if you talk to people about personal responsibility, it, it, it's not that simple, but it has to be a part of the equation. Someone has to be willing to take ownership of and make decisions that ultimately will lead them to being happier, healthier, in, in whatever form that takes. Right. Yeah. I totally agree with you on that. Um, again, that's, this is, these are things that I end up talking to my clients about in length and, and whether that's like just from buy-in, like it, the, you might get somebody who's more likely to do some of those things if you are able to create buy-in, but there are some people that they need to just generally invest more into, um, you know, just being accountable um, to themselves. Um, so, um, I wanted to, this is going to be one of my last questions. Um, you mentioned for some people when they're, they're getting started, one of the first things is like, you know, find a good gym and find a good coach. Um, are there any red flags? Cause I know that Dr. Stuart McGill brought up a survey one time at one point in time where it was uh, more clients get injured at the hands of their personal trainer, like sustain a low back injury at the hands of a personal trainer than they do on their own. Cause they're less likely to push themselves into that. I don't know if it's actually true, if it's an actual real stat, um, but that had gotten brought up. 
is are there red flags for hiring a coach? The problem is, of course, you know, when you're dealing with averages, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, skilled, qualified coaches are probably going to be the best and safest place for someone to learn. <sighs> Stu Miguel, I, I actually like a lot of his stuff, and I think he's a very good source of information to learn about this stuff. But there's also a lot of people very critical of Stu. And there's more of this attitude now that tends to be very almost hostile towards Stu. Uh, Squat University is another uh, target of this kind of mentality. And there's a few others of people in the fitness space who create message in media that make people afraid of lifting, uh, fearful about doing anything, and perpetuate a lot of this idea that lifting is is dangerous, whether overtly or or sort of maybe unintentionally. And I, and I don't, humans are very resilient. I mean, on one hand, I don't think it should be anything goes. I think, you know, trainers have a duty of care to be as well-educated as possible. And I think clients have to certainly be very careful how they choose their trainers, but I, I'm not behind this message that is, is fear-based uh, to make uh, athlete X is another guy. And, and again, you know, I, I'm not trying to call out people as much as just point out that some of these, these people in our space tend to a little too much focus on the fear and the danger that people are, are brittle and fragile when in fact they're not. I think teaching people to have excellent exercise form is really important. My favorite resource I would go to instead is a guy like Dr. Sam Spinelli, who's a good friend of mine. He's a strength coach and, and doctor. He has a doctorate in physical therapy. And I think if people go to Sam, you'll get a lot of really good evidence-based stuff. So red flags I still think it comes down to doing your homework, doing your research and finding really reputable people. You know, if, if you're local, you know, somewhere and you've got a guy like a Sam Spinelli in Kelowna, BC or a Dean Somerset in Edmonton, Alberta, or, you know, a Tony Janelcore in Boston, then, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're legendary in the industry. You might want to seek these people out. They seem to strike the perfect balance of this stuff. They're very skilled. Yes, there's an inherent risk of stepping in the gym and getting hurt, but sitting on the couch and doing nothing metaphorically or literally is far riskier for the long term. And, and I, I don't like scaring people into thinking that they're, they're likely to get hurt at the slightest imperfect movement. And in my experience, yeah, I know, I know the clients occasionally aches pains, you know, pushing too heavy. I think as a, as a trainer, it's actually really imperative that we are very thoughtful about how we load people and how we push people. But Again, I find humans are pretty resilient. It, again, it, it's just the individual person. You have to know the risk tolerance of that person. My client, Larry, 71, lift, wants to lift the heaviest shit possible. He's also five foot four with a short back. So trap or deadlifting, he, he's super well suited to it. So I don't mind maxing out on that or farmer's carries. Whereas there's certain other things and other clients that I, I, I just don't max them out, right? I, I don't think that's where we want to be for most people. But Larry loves it. it. He powers through. He wants to show up at the gym all the time. He wants to be strong. So what's the net benefit What's the risk to reward? Every decision we make in a gym environment, it has risk versus reward. And if we treat every person like encase them in bubble wrap for fear that God forbid anything possibly bad can happen, we're on average going to get nowhere near the best results for those people. And they may not enjoy the experience to want to continue. So there's no perfect answer to this. Uh, find good resources, learn to differentiate between what's kind of fear-based versus what's constructive and focus on continuing continually educating yourself both as a client and as the as the coach and i just hope that you have the best possible outcome
I'm out of time, my friend. Right. Andrew, I really appreciate you coming on. If, um, if you, if you could just maybe just a couple of places where people could find you. Sure. Uh, all roads go through Instagram. So at Andrew Coates Fitness, C-O-A-T-E-S. If you have questions, please message me. I will respond to everything. I always get back to people. Um, at my website, andrewcoatesfitness.com. You know, my articles are up there and I link through anything that I get published anywhere else. And if you're really determined, I, I'd rather you support uh, my friend Davis here and enjoy his podcast. Go give him a review. If, you, if you've been someone who's dedicated to listening, you haven't given a review yet, do that. Go share this podcast with someone in your world who you think might value it. If you like what I had to say, come say hi to me on Instagram. I'll try to share stuff that, that makes your follow earned and, and keep earning it. So I look forward to chatting with you. Thank you, my friend. Really, really great to talk. And I um, hope you have an awesome day. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Cheers.